Thank you so much. Uh, John Fishman is at the Treasury Department, the Terrorist and Financing Section uh, at the Department of Treasury, uh, a section that we know very well in our AML community. Um, John was kind enough to reach out to us to want to go into a deeper dive than we've been able to do on the Treasury's recent de-risking strategy. Obviously, a very important uh, challenge and topic for our community. And, and as John well knows, uh, sort of mixed uh, responses from the community when it came out. Obviously, some really solid recommendations, some descriptions of the problem. So, John, I want to thank you first for joining us doing this today. And maybe just start off this way. It was a mandated study, obviously, but what's from your perspective, what's behind the mandate? Besides the obvious, it's a it's a challenge for both people that need financial access and financial inclusion. Uh, it's also a challenge for regulators that oversee all this, law enforcement who worries about risk, and then of course the financial sector that has to process this. So. Uh, Give us a sense uh, of the scope of this and then all the groups that were involved in putting it together, because I think that's pretty important because you did consult with a whole host of uh, folks. And I think that's an important element of the final report. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, and first of all, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Um, you asked about the mandate. I think it's very interesting that this was mandated as part of the AML Act, because what I think that goes to show is a, is a recognition by the US government and the Biden administration that um, de-risking has negative consequences beyond the simple fact that it imposes economic costs on certain groups sometimes. It also has money laundering and terrorist financing risk consequences and broader foreign policy consequences. So I think one of the things that it goes to show is that um, we see um, the attempts to combat de-risking as being an important part of mitigating AML CFT risks, because to the extent that there's a, a, a really severe de-risking problem, that tends to exacerbate the risks of money laundering and terrorist financing. It can cause other kinds of, of uh, foreign policy downsides. Um, in addition to the, the difficulties and the costs that it can impose on, on everyday Americans. So I think it's actually uh, quite telling and important that it's in the AML Act, because oftentimes there's this myth that um, the AML imperative and the financial inclusion imperative are at war with each other. And that is not the way we see it. We don't see them as being in opposition to each other. We see them as being complementary to each other. Um, you also asked about the scope and about uh, who was consulted. So um, we were given, I think, a very wide mandate in this study, a very broad mandate, I guess would be a better way to say it. Um, and so what we tried to do is to go back to first principles with this, because this is a topic that has been talked about for a long time. I think we, we felt that in some respects, the conversation had driven into a cul-de-sac to, to a certain extent. And so we wanted to approach it very broadly to, to, to go back to the beginning. Um, and we had the, luckily we had the time to consult with several dozen stakeholders from all over the community, um, in the government, in the banking sector, in the MSB sector, in humanitarian organizations and NGOs, in a number of trade groups. Um, we spoke informally to some of our counterparts in other governments as well. Um, and drew on you know 10 plus years of work on this topic. So I think we got a, a, a very broad sampling of the relevant stakeholders here. So I guess uh, given that also, I think it's pretty fair to say when you 
when you author a report with so many uh, editors or authors that there has to be some compromise. So let me ask this without telling us where the compromises were made. And as I, you know, you mentioned how long this has been going on. I can tell you back in 2005, when I was with the Bankers Association, we worked with your uh, former colleagues uh, to do an all day meeting about MSBs and the problems they were having getting banked back in 2005. And part of that struggle was that regulators, examiners were telling banks, MSBs typically higher risk, you better have your proper due diligence or you can't bank those entities. And what we found from that was an all day meeting. It was kind of interesting. We actually had it at the Mayflower in DC. We probably had 25 uh, speakers. It was like a town hall sort of thing, right? And so each of them came to the microphone and we were all up on the on the dais, people from Treasury and FinCEN and the financial sector. Uh, it was basically the BSAG that we, we did it through. And it was really uh, compelling the impact, as you just mentioned, that it was having when people can't get access, when there is that frustration that there's risk issues, but how do you mitigate it? So it's clearly been around quite a long period of time. And I use that as a long-winded way of saying, obviously, there's the regulatory side, there's the private sector side, as I said before, and the law enforcement side, and just overall policy, like the State Department wants to make sure that you're banking uh, charitable groups. You want to make sure that you're uh, with correspondent banking, that you're doing good service uh, internationally. So given that scope, um, do you feel that the end product reflects as best you could sort of all those worlds? And then I want to, I'm going to ask you some specific questions where some of the wording I think is, is frustrating to our world, but we'll go through it. I want to hear your responses. But just given what you had to do, is that always going to be a potential problem, or maybe not a problem, but a potential outcome that you have to you have to appease all these different groups, and as a as a result, maybe some things that you might have wanted weren't in there, or something that the regulators might have wanted wasn't in there. Again, I don't want specifics, but I think that's a fair assessment, isn't it? Um, well, this is a very complicated and, and multifaceted problem. This is why, as you noted, I mean, 2005, that's 18 years ago at the moment right. we're speaking. So given that this has been going on for close to two decades, I'm, I mean, 2005 is the first term of George W. Bush. So that's how long this has been going on. So if it's been going on since at least then, it's, it's clearly a very complicated and multifaceted thing. Um, that, that's what makes it interesting to work on, but it's also one thing that makes it difficult. Um, I don't think it would be giving away any any secret to say that a product like this that has to go through the that comes from the entire U.S. government and is meant to speak for the Treasury Department, but to reflect very widely uh, the views. There are always things in it where there are different stakeholders with different viewpoints and different needs and different roles. So I don't think it would shock anyone to say that you know at times there needs to be some calibration to speak with one voice when people have uh, lots of different opinions um, and lots of different perspectives on it. But all that being said, um, I do think we're very happy with the way that the report um, reflects our fundamental views of the problem. Um, I think we strongly believe that this is the um, most robust thing we've ever said on de-risking, both in the way it assesses the problem and in what it proposes as the strategy. So I think we're very happy with that. Um, and I think we think that it um, reflects the views um, of the Treasury Department as the lead, but also takes into account the views of, of a lot of other 
um, stakeholders in terms of putting it together. So, I mean, just to step away from the substance for a minute and talk about the process. I mean, anyone who's ever worked on one of these things in the government or any large organization knows there are always different interests that you have to balance a little bit. But um, I, I, I do think that we're happy with where the final product came out. Um, we did not have, I don't think, fundamental conflicts with any stakeholder, including those we heard from in the private sector, uh, about what I believe to be the key analytic conclusions with it. So I think it ended in a good place. I think it does um, reflect people's views. Uh, the you know sometimes the process in, in any in any bureaucracy or any large organization, sometimes the process of getting one of these things out, there there can there are a lot of phone calls and a lot of drafts and everything. But uh, I do think it it came out well in the end. All right, I do want to walk walk through the recommendations because that's the key part. I mean, obviously, people should read the entire report, which is what we've said when we came out and looked at it initially, not just the recommendations, but the entire report. Uh, but a couple things struck me. One is the definition. Now, I know what FATF has said about de-risking. I know what others have said. But looking directly at the introduction here, that you uh, define it as the practice of institutions terminating or restricting business relationships indiscriminately with broad categories of clients rather than analyzing and managing the risk. I push back on that. I think, does that happen? Absolutely, it does happen. But I would I would argue that in some institutions, it is case by case, and it's not indiscriminate, indiscriminately, that, that's a loaded word in, in our humble opinion. Uh, so I think part of the concern when you read something like this is the definition, right? So sometimes people will say de-risking is uh, eliminating broad categories of customers. Others will say it's a decision made based on fear of regulatory oversight or high risk that can't be mitigated or, or uh, to be fair, uh, profitability. So I think though, so I think when you start off with that, I will just tell you from our world, the rest of the report can be very well crafted, which it is, and I, I would never say it was not. And I, and I do think there's a lot of good things in there. But you read that first paragraph and you go, really, this is what we're starting with? So give me a sense of why that those words were chosen. Yeah, thank you. Um, here's why those words were chosen. We want to draw a distinction between two different things. The first is where a financial institution looks carefully at a customer and looks at its own ability to mitigate the risks of that customer and says, I can't make these two things match. This is a ridiculous example, but to illustrate the point, I'm going to choose an example that takes it to an extreme. Okay. Suppose the customer comes in and the customer is an SDN. Can't, can't mitigate the risk of that. I'm sorry, I can't thank you. That's that's the first thing. And that is not de-risking to us and not what we want to combat. That's sort of what our entire AML-CFT regime is predicated on. It's exactly what we want financial institutions to be doing. That's all great and wonderful. Uh, on the other hand, suppose customers come in and um, there's some extremely broad category that they fall into, such as money services businesses. Um, and the bank says, well, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't care about anything else. I don't want to hear. I don't, doesn't matter what your customer base is. I don't care how strong your AML program is. I don't care if I'm one of the biggest banks in the world with enormous compliance resources and I'm well positioned to mitigate the risk of you. I don't care about any of that. You're part of this broad category, so I can't take you on. Goodbye and good luck. And that can become so absurd that I've actually had this happen to me a couple of times that people come to us and say, I work at an MSB, but my personal bank account, which has nothing to do with my job, they found out that I work at an MSB and they close my account, the account that I pay my mortgage from. 
And I said to them, what are you doing? And they said, well, what, once we see those letters, you're out of here. So what the, the reason that definition was chosen is to separate that first thing, which is completely right. appropriate and not de-risking from that second thing. Now, I would agree with you that there are words in that definition that are potentially subjective, like indiscriminate. Right. Um, but I think what we believe that it was a, necessary to leave a little bit of judgment in that because ultimately there is a potentially fuzzy line in what is enough due diligence and enough risk tolerance. And that may vary. Uh, you know, in the course of an earlier study that was mandated by Congress on de-risking that I wrote several years ago, um, we consulted with a number of banks and a couple of them were the biggest banks in the world. I don't, I don't, I don't want to name them because I didn't ask their permission, but you, you know, the huge global banks. And a, a couple of the others were tiny, tiny credit unions and community banks that have literally two locations and the compliance staff you know, could fit in a phone booth almost. So it's entirely appropriate for them to have a different definition of um, what kind of customers that they're gonna take and what, what indiscriminate means to them and how exhaustive their CDD can be and all of those things. So that's why we thought it was, it was necessary to leave some amount of judgment in the definition. But I don't think the definition really is meant to disagree with the vision that you laid out in the question. What the definition is meant to say is there may very well be customers that a financial institution should not bank. If you run a tiny credit union, uh, the, the first one that jumps to mind, there were, there were two locations in Wisconsin and the compliance staff could fit around a small conference table. If you run that institution, there are some customers that you probably shouldn't touch. And whoever you are, you shouldn't take a customer that, as I said, I know this is absurd, but just illustrate, you shouldn't take an SDN. So we can't have a definition where anytime you don't give someone access to financial services, it's de-risking because then the term would have no meaning. So what we're looking for is a way to define it when that, that it expresses that what we don't wanna see is that because of your membership in a large and potentially diverse group, and I mean diverse from the standpoint of different kinds of AML risk, a large and diverse group, you don't even get your day in court, so to speak. And regardless of what the resources the institution can bring to bear are. So that's what the definition is getting at. Yeah. Uh, so again, I, we won't agree to disagree, but I think that was sort of a hot button word. The other one is profitability. So you do you do define it carefully within the description after you say that it's mainly, in my words, not exactly what it says, profitability, because you call profitability risk mitigation, resource allocate. You, you don't simply say they're not doing it because it's not making enough money. That's not what you're saying. But again, a word like profitability has that connotation, even though, to be fair, you don't say that's in the report. In the report, you spell out why you use that word. But, you know, like I said, this is in the world we live in, as you know, John, you know, people, they read headlines and a couple things and, and then that's it, which they should not do. They need to read this entire report. But I think the word profitability. Now, I talked to another lawyer that represents a ton of banks and also a uh, former regulator. And he said he disagreed with me. He didn't think the word profitability was that negative. He said because because he read the whole thing and he said because it says the profitability issue with risk mitigation, reputational concern, uh, regulatory expectations, and making a decision whether all that is is going to be worth, uh, you know, the, the commitment to that particular high-risk customer. 
Uh, so, I, so, but I do think, again, just another thing that just jumped out at me as somebody who's been doing this like you for a long, long time, you see the headlines and you go, well, profitable, come on, guys. But then it should force all of us to read through there. So you don't necessarily have to defend the term, but you can, you can, I think, see why that would turn some of us off thinking you're just saying these, you know, these selfish bankers, they're just getting out of these indiscriminately getting out of these lines of business because it's not making them money. Whereas we both know many banks want to serve charities. Some do focus on MSBs. They don't all, but some do, and correspondent banking. So some want to do all that, but there's some of the other things that prevent that from happening. So I realize I'm making more of a statement than a question. But as you can see, I mean, I, I think some of those words are sort of hot button to some of us. Yeah, I mean, I see your point. I think with profitability, here's what we were getting at. Um, you're right that we, as we say in the strategy, but as as might not fit, you know, in the in the Twitter generation where you reduce everything to 128 characters. Right. As we say in the strategy, there's more to profitability than simply what is the revenue stream from this. Now, I, I will say this, and maybe we'll we'll disagree more after I finish the when I started. Part of it is the revenue stream. I mean, a, a bank is a is a is a is a business. Sure. Um, I know plenty of bankers who I, I, I uh, believe when they say that they want to take on remittances and they want to take on charities. Um, I think they're absolutely sincere about that. And they also often tell us that they want to support you know, national security and fi financial crime fights. And I also believe that most of them are sincere about that. That, that being said, you know, it is a business which is there to make money and there's nothing wrong with that. This is a market-based economy. Um, and so we do think that the simple matter of revenue, simple but important, is a big part of it. However, as you noted, yeah, there's more to profitability than just that. There are also concerns about what it costs to have risk mitigation in place and um, you know, pricing and regulatory risk and all of these other things. Um, I think you, you may find that if you try to find one word which encapsulates that better than profitability, it's, it's harder than it sounds. Um, sure, so, sure. Okay. you know, we, we definitely did give consideration in this to trying to present complicated ideas in a, in a simple and short way. And some people who have to read the report may think we didn't do a great job with the short part. Um, but, um, you know, just as with the definition that we just talked about with indiscriminate, I think it's, it's we're trying to make a, a fairly nuanced point. And I think it's quite hard to reduce that to one word and as I said at the beginning, when I talked about how we wanted to go back to first principles, um, I think part of our view, my view, is that because this has been talked about a long time, um, it was very important to um, put a document out there which tells a full story so that we, we go back and begin at the beginning. And an inevitable result of that was that you have uh, things like this issue of the word profitability, where you do have to read quite a bit to see exactly what it is saying. Um, but all that to say, um, yeah, I mean, I think we fully agree that there is more to profitability than just revenue. Although we also think revenue is an important factor, especially looking abroad. I mean, if you look at the the most de-risked jurisdictions in the world, it's not really a list of the riskiest countries in the world. It's really a, risk, a, a list of the smallest countries in the world with low volumes. Um, and that are not profitable from a revenue standpoint. And then there's a little sprinkling on top of the stew of AMLCFT risk, but it's mainly a list of tiny countries where you wouldn't make that much money. Yeah. Um, so that is what went into that. I mean, I think it's 
entirely fair to say that if you take the strategy and, and what you read of it is um, a two sentence headline, yeah, there's a lot in there that could mislead you. Um, but it, you know, this was meant to be um, more of a, I don't want to say this bluntly because it sounds boring, but this was meant to be more of a, of a, of a textbook than a, than a comic book. So um, I, I think we wanted to put out something that was almost like reference material on de-risking. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And I know I'm not keeping you longer than we had planned, but I don't want to, I want to go through these recommendations because these are, these are very solid. So uh, reading, reading off the report, the first one, which is one we obviously strongly support, and that's promote consistent regulatory expectations, including training of federal examiners to consider the effects of de-risking. And that's obviously part of AMLA. I think that's an area where uh, the financial sector feels very strongly that what happens, you know, I, I moderate a lot of panels of uh, regulators, the heads of the AML heads of these various agencies. And whenever you say to them, uh, there's issues with the way your examiners treat account opening and, uh, you know, continued uh, a support of a particular high-risk client, they go, we never tell banks to exit relationships. Well, that's not true, unfortunately. What happens is not the folks here in DC, they are training well and they're doing their jobs. I've known them forever. But what will happen is an examiner will say, this MSB, what, you know, what are you doing? Not specifically this MSB, what are you doing in terms of due diligence or this Syrian relief organization? Have you done enough there? That sort of thing. So uh, I think the need of training of examiners above and beyond how they're trained today is so essential. It's in the report. So I'm assuming then, not just because it's in AMLA, that your regulatory partners signed off on, yes, that should be in the report. Well, the federal banking agencies had opportunities to consult on the report, and we certainly um, considered carefully in this instance and in any instance um, that affects their equities, uh, what their view were. I mean, ultimately, this is a treasury product, so right, right, we're, right. we're really the only ones who I think we can say stand behind everything that's in it and, and okay. approved it, and we're, we're sort of the only people that should be uh, held, held responsible for what's in the report. Okay. Um, so we did have a chance to consult with them. But um, I, I wouldn't want to say that uh, everything in there um, is, fair. you know, can be can be ascribed to them. Okay, fair. The the uh, the second one is really interesting because we looked at this. We being through the World Bank and ACAMS and the charity groups, we produced a report back in 2019, basically about how institutions, financial institutions and charities could better understand one another. And one of the issues that came up was the notes they get at account termination. And your second bullet here is to analyze those notices and notice periods given to MSB customers and NPO customers and identify ways to support longer notice periods where possible. No quibble with the longer period if possible, but here's what the charity said to us early on. Why do we get these letters that simply say, you don't fit our business model? You and I know why, right? Because we could, the bank could have filed a SAR. They don't want to tip off the customer. They certainly don't want to give the reason because your account was high risk or suspicious. You just can't do that. Once we explain that to the charities, they didn't love it, but they understood. But they didn't know that before. They were so offended by these two-line letters that they would get from banks when accounts were closed. So extending the period, give them more time to go somewhere else, I can't imagine that... Um, banks would have heartburn over that. So that seems like a pretty reasonable 
recommendation? Have you heard anything thus far from the from the community about that? Um, not since the report was published. We were okay. frankly surprised in the consultation period how often this was raised um, by MSBs and by charities that they get a letter and there's virtually no notice before the account is terminated. Right. Um, I can imagine circumstances where that's appropriate. I mean, I'm going back to my absurd example just to illustrate the point, but let's say that somebody is listed as an SDN, the account's gonna be closed instantly and that's appropriate. Um, but my guess is that in most scenarios, that's not necessary, or at least in a large proportion of them, it's not necessary. Because if it's simply an issue of having changed the bank's view of the risks in this area or what their risk appetite is or whatever, it's hard to see why that changes so quickly in the matter of a couple of business days that you can't provide a little bit more notice. Um, so I think we were surprised by how often we heard this. Um, and so we want to look look at it more because our um, we, we, we'd have to study it to, to say this more authoritatively, but our sense is that it's likely that in many cases, there's really no good reason why more notice couldn't be uh, provided. So looking at some of the other ones, obviously uh, reducing burdensome requirements for processing humanitarian assistance. I think that's something that we all would uh, welcome if that were possible. I know that in the report that we produced a couple of years ago, we advocated for a registry, but your peers in the government said that'd be really hard to produce. And I certainly understand that. So that ask you to comment on that, but uh, encouraging more dialogue obviously always makes a ton of sense. And there's obviously working groups out there that are currently uh, trying to figure this out. Um, but looking at innovation and technologies, I think those are all make a ton of sense. The international component is pretty important, right? I know Congress has held hearings about the correspondent bank uh, de-risking challenges, and that's obviously uh, outside the, the scope of, uh, of the U.S. So what other recommendations? There's a good 10 or 12 of them here that are really solid, and I think nobody who wants to see this improve could disagree with the goals, but ones that you want to particularly focus on as we as we close this out, because I think again, urge people for the tenth time read the whole report. Uh, there's a there's a tremendous amount of good analysis in there and well crafted. Again, we can argue about wording, but we you know we can get past that and try to figure this out. But what are some of the recommendations, that maybe that are in this report that we hadn't seen before that you want to highlight? Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, well, the one I'd like to start with, I mean, I don't know if this is going to be something that you haven't seen before. In fact, I think it's going to be something you have seen before, but I want to highlight it because I think people gloss over it and it's kind of boring, but it's it's actually really, really important is uh, if memory serves, it may even be the last one listed there, which is um, enhanced public-private dialogue about this right. issue. The reason I want to highlight this is I think people think that's, you know, kind of an easy mealy mouth answer and it's not interesting and their eyes glaze over and they move on to the next thing. But I think this is something that is really, really, really important and almost can never be done enough. So you, you mentioned that the uh, NGOs didn't understand why an account might be closed in the particular way that it was closed. If I had a, a penny for every time that I've been involved in some sort of public-private dialogue and it turns out that the problem is not real conflict in the, in the rules and regulations or risk appetites, but actually just misunderstanding, I could solve this problem by paying it all out of my own pocket. 
I mean, it is extremely, extremely common. That's what our report did, by the way. Our report was designed to say, here's what the banks need to do that you don't know, charities. And charities are, here's what the charities are currently required to do that banks you don't know. So that was our goal, to, to your point. It's still obviously a challenge, but that was the issue. They didn't understand one another. So communication doesn't necessarily need legislation, right? It needs communication. Right, exactly. And I mean, we will often have these public-private dialogues with um, another a foreign government or a group of governments and bankers from either side and MSBs from either side. And what makes those useful is that, just as you're saying, there is a tremendous amount of lack of knowledge about each other, which causes problems that could easily be resolved just by talking about it. There are problems of um, not lack of understanding of information sharing requirements lack of understanding of which parts of the process are important, lack of understanding in, in, in you know, how to deal with each other in a user-friendly way. And even though we've been, we've been working on these kind of public-private dialogues things for so long, as, as I say, it's, it's something that you can never really be done with because there's always new people coming in, there's always new issues to deal with. Oftentimes we will do this in partnership with a foreign government and they'll be the private sector from both countries. Well, every time the government's changed, it's new people, so you, so I want to call people's attention to that because I think it's an easy thing to gloss over and find boring, but it's actually extremely important. And it's one of the only ways I've ever seen a de-risking problem be, be actually solved virtually on the spot. Because every once in a while, you're at one of these things and, and uh, just, just to give you a, an example, maybe uh, you have an American bank and a foreign bank and the foreign bank's not able to get accounts. And the American bank says, well, we sent you a long questionnaire and you didn't answer it. And the foreign bank says, oh, well, we didn't think that was important. And the American bank's like, uh, yeah, yeah that's, the, that's, that's the ticket price, buddy. Or they'll say, well, we have this information sharing law, so we couldn't answer some of the questions. So we thought we just shouldn't respond at all. And the, and the foreign government listening says, oh, wait a minute, do we need to change that? that regulation, whatever it might be. But the point is sometimes virtually on the spot, you can see that there's just a misunderstanding and you can fix it. Um, so I do want to call people's attention to that because I think there's a, a great tendency to, um, to gloss over that kind of thing and to find it boring. Um, uh, I mean, I also think that this thing about kind of tracking the, um, tracking the data on this is quite important. Um, there is a, a, a degree to which all the knowledge on de-risking is kind of artisanal um, because you know people know it because they've been doing this a long time and they've talked to a lot of people, but that's, you know, the plural of anecdote is it shouldn't be data, it's their anecdotes. And so to have actual hard numbers of this, which can be surprisingly difficult to come by um, I think is is really, really helpful. And then the last thing I want to raise, um, and I want to raise this because it's really interesting, not because it's it's an easy one. In fact, I think this is the hardest thing that's in the strategy. Um, this idea has been very vaguely percolating for years, but we talk in the report about the idea of having um, specific, specifically purposed entities for consolidating regional funds flows. So if you imagine a region with a lot of very small, heavily de-risked countries, like the Pacific Islands or the Caribbean or a place like that, um, you know, this idea has been out there for a while, but we've never really said anything about it of having a single entity through which you could flow all of the transactions so that that single entity would be more profitable and more credible to get correspondent relationships. 
Um, the reason I mention this is that this is this is kind of the opposite of the public-private dialogue thing in that I think it's very kind of intellectually interesting for many people. It may be a new thing that they've not heard about. Um, it would be you know exceptionally challenging to do, and I think Treasury would probably have to be in a supporting role with uh, IFIs or foreign uh, government or somebody like that in the lead role. Um, but I think people may find it interesting to take a look at what the strategy says and kind of consider the, the possibilities there, um, only because this is a very novel thing. Um, and one of the things in the strategy that does get directly to what we see as the primary issue of profitability. That very, very well said. Let, let me get you out of here on this. Uh, you closed the report by saying what we've already talked about. There's no single action by the federal government will be a panacea. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity in here. Go, going off the de-risking part of this for a little bit, but going back to AMLA, one of the other parts of AMLA that you, I'm sure you're very well aware of and maybe even be involved in is a review of the AML infrastructure, right? So the current infrastructure, as I well know, since I've been involved since the Money Laundering Control Act, is that with a series of laws and regulations, a patchwork, if you will, in reaction to certain things with never anything being eliminated or relatively modified, right? So you have all these requirements, you have all these issues, and I think looking at that becomes important. But I also think everybody's got to come to the table, uh, as Quincy Jones says, leave your egos outside the door, right? So the regulators have to recognize that sometimes their examiners screw up. The bankers have to recognize that sometimes they're just closing accounts because they don't want to deal with things. The, the high-risk entities need to know, hey, we need to be more communicative about what we're already doing, you know, what our requirements are. So you can't force those people to do all that, but will any changes to the AML infrastructure sort of help that in your view? This is a, this is a big picture question. This is not, you know, change 18 USC 1956, but just from your perspective, if, you know, you're running things for a day and you want to modify the infrastructure, what would you focus on? Um, that's a very good question. Um, be, because there's kind of an ongoing process with this, there's there's a limit to how much specificity I think I can really give you. Oh, sure. Um, sure. What I think, I, I think the best answer that I can give to you is to say, uh, since you 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 called it a big picture question, which I think is the right way to look at it, is if you look at what's in this strategy, if you look at what's in a lot of the other AMLA processes, if you look at the the uh, the infrastructure that you're talking about. And if you look at the Biden administration's policies, I think you can see that a lot of different things are pointing in the direction of um, trying to look for greater efficiencies and greater degree of balance and a little more sophistication and nuance in our overall uh, AML CFT regime. Um, and I think that is kind of a through line of all of these policies. It's certainly something that we were looking for in the de-risking strategy. And I think as we go forward to implement um, all of the provisions of AMLA, uh, that will be a consistent theme throughout. And for people who, who follow de-risking, um, I think that goes to show that this uh, remains an administration priority. I mean, I can tell you that senior policymakers here are very, very interested in this problem and want to see progress on it and are willing to expend uh, resources to work on it. Um, so I think that you will see continued focus in this area and a desire to um, make our regime a little bit, a little bit more fine-tuned, a little bit more efficient, uh, strongly focused on uh, effectiveness, uh, 
and to uh, kind of acknowledge that at this point, uh, the forest had gotten a little bit thick and there may be a need in, in places to prune. John, uh, John Fishman, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Really appreciate it. I think uh, what we've made clear is what we've tried to do since the strategy was released. Read the strategy, learn from the strategy, whether you are in the uh, high risk groups that are watching this or listening to this, or you're in the government or the uh, financial sector, you know, we can all do more, we can all do better. And as I mentioned to John a while ago in 2005, we we're trying to figure out the MSB challenges and we're still trying to figure that out 18 years later. So there's no easy fixes, uh, but I do think the strategy has added not just um, uh, additional information, but obviously some focused recommendations. And we're hoping they'll, they'll be followed up uh, by, by policymakers and your peers and colleagues. So thanks so much for doing this, really appreciate it. Uh, John, thank you so much for having me. I want to welcome you to the club of the only non-treasury people ever to read the whole strategy. It basically consists now of you and my mom. So welcome. Uh, your medal's in the mail. And thank you very much for having me.